I didn't know they were doing that. They didn't know I was preaching. He will be great. Our children are dismissed to their class through that door. And if you have a Bible, we are looking this morning at Luke chapter 1, 26 to 37. The Word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Lazarus. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I am amazed at how accurately doctors can predict the ultimate uh, physical height and weight of a baby right when they're born. This is true of our middle son, Luke. Luke was born and the doctor said he's going to be around 6'4", 220. Spot on, exactly. But they didn't know anything about Luke's personality, his gifts, or his spirituality. That kind of thing is hidden from doctors. It's hidden from parents. Only God knows what newborns will grow up to become. The birth of Jesus is a unique, dramatic exception to that. While Mary is not even yet pregnant, God tells her something about her son, Jesus. Verse 32. He will be great. And we can't be sure what that meant for Mary at that moment, but that promise raises at least three questions. Number one. Why should she know this? Apparently she should because the angel tells her this. So let me speculate for at least two reasons. One, Mary should know that her son Jesus will be great. First, because this is in fact a most highly unusual occurrence. Both a baby born to Elizabeth's barren womb and a baby to be born to Mary's virgin womb 
is nothing short of supernatural miracle. This is why the angel tells Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. The Spirit of God, in her case, will supernaturally create in her a person who is fully God and fully man. That had never happened before, and it will never happen again. So it's the kind of thing it helps to know a little bit about ahead of time. A highly unusual occurrence. Secondly, we can speculate that Mary should know this because, humanly speaking, she might become discouraged by the outward appearances of the life of her son, Jesus. So suppose you had a child and God told you, your child will be great. You probably would have that notion in the forefront of your mind virtually every day of your child's life. You'd be wondering, when is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? What is that going to look like? Right? So suppose you're a parent in first century Palestine, and God promises your child will be great. Where might your imagination go? Mine might go like this. Oh, my son will be the first Israelite gold medalist in the marathon at the Olympics in Athens. My son's going to be elected to the Senate in Jerusalem. He'll become a famous theologian. My son will become a scientist who will discover something that advances the welfare of mankind. My daughter's going to be a highly successful business entrepreneur. My daughter will be a physician who helped cure leprosy. My son or my daughter will become an artist of world-famous acclaim or a top chef who specialized in Middle Eastern cuisine. So right, those are some examples. You might think about the greatness of your child. Mary has to endure waiting for this reality to be manifested through at least these four stages, a tumultuous beginning, a quite ordinary youth, a controversial middle, and a, a tumult uh, and, a, and a tragic end to his life. Let me unpack that. You're Mary. You're waiting on God to reveal what does the greatness of this boy look like and what happens at the beginning of his life. Well, Jesus, your son, is indirectly responsible for the murder of thousands of baby boys in Palestine at Herod's command because your son exists. And because you have this son, just as you settle into the routine of your home in Nazareth, you have to flee to Egypt because of your son. So tumultuous beginning. And then his middle life is average and ordinary. We know nothing about it. Nothing. Nothing nowhere to put in the scriptures except one trip, family trip, to Jerusalem when Jesus was 12. That's all we know about the, the growing up life of Jesus. Mary's waiting. What's this going to look like, Lord? What's this going to look like? So what about his controversial middle life? After 30 years of waiting, working as a woodworker in dumpy Palestine, nobody sends postcards from Palestine. He starts his career, but Jesus does not have a distinguished career in government, the arts, medicine, politics, sports, education. Rather, he conducted his ministry without fortune or family. He had nowhere to lay his head. He lived a life of poverty. You're like, oh, my grown-up son is on welfare. Really? Jesus is supported materially by the gifts of abandoned women. And in spite of his fame, no doubt, 
masses flocked to Jesus. In spite of his fame, Jesus' reputation among the religious leaders was what? Your son is a fraud. He's a demon. He's a partier. He's an insurrectionist. He's a blasphemer, and he's a drunkard. She would fully expect to walk into the post office, and there is my son's picture in the post office. Who could blame her if she's discouraged by all these appearances? And what about his tragic ending? Completely misunderstood by his contemporaries, deserted by his closest friends. The crowds in Jerusalem demanded his destruction, his sinless life, exchanged for a murderer, falsely accused, scorned, mocked, tortured. Your son died penniless in great agony and shame, and his only possession of garment becomes the spoil of gamblers. I mean, his, his story would be summed up in the obituary in the local newspaper like this. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, smitten of God and afflicted. He had no physical appearance that we should desire him. So there are reasons Mary should know that her son would be great. Secondly, how could Mary know this? On what hope should, could she hang? On what could she hang her hopes that her son would grow up to be great? God said so. And God cannot lie. God cannot be surprised. God cannot be mistaken, and God keeps his promises. God said so in the present through the angelic prophetic word. The angel says he will be great. That's God saying that. And God had said it in the past through the prophets, the law, and the Psalms. I've just picked three for you on the outline. They all three come from Isaiah. So you're Mary this morning, this pronouncement is made that your son, not even conceived in your womb yet, will be great, and you're in your devotions reading in the book of Isaiah. What do you discover? Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Your son will be God with us. That's a lot of greatness. She flips ahead to Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, my son is the great light of God shining in this dark world. And then later in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no increase, no end to the increase of his government. You would have to say that there is enough greatness in there to make any parent proud. Third, obviously this is going to take the most time in the sermon. In what sense will Jesus be great? And this, this is a little tricky because in fact the greatness of Jesus is immeasurable. The glory of Jesus is at one level incomprehensible. But we're going to try. We're going to try to talk about it. Because in fact the angel, the angel does give something for Mary to hang her understanding of the greatness on and us. And that's verse 32 and 33. 
they amplify in what sense Jesus will be great. One, he will be called the Son of God. That is who Jesus is. He's great in his being. Secondly, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and there'll be no end to his kingdom. Great in power and authority. What he came to do. Theologians would call this, Jesus is great in his person and his work. So let's tease out those two things. First, Jesus will be great in his power and his authority. God will give him the throne of his father David. Jesus' kingdom will last forever. What about the power of Jesus? Well, there was nothing Jesus could not control. Everything was under his control. He had power over nature. There's too much wind and, and, and storm on the sea. Stop! And it stopped. People were hungry. He could multiply the molecules of bread just like that and feed 5,000 people. All the wine runs out. Give him water. He'll create the best wine in the world. He had power over demons. With a word, they had, to, they had to leave the lives of tormented people. He had power over human bodies. He healed the sick, the blind, the lame, the withered. He raised the dead. Beloved, he could exercise his power because of his authority. Think about it. If you had power but no authority, that would be futile. If you had authority to do something but no power, that would be impotent. Jesus had both. Let me say this to those of you who do not consider yourselves Christians. You may be thinking about the Christian faith. You're just curious about it, but you are here. We who evidence some measure of love for Jesus, devotion to Jesus, a desire to praise him and serve him, our hearts have come under his power. He's changed us. We've experienced the newness of the glory of Jesus. He's come in and he's given us hearts and the things that come out of us that make us different than we otherwise would be, it's all due to Jesus' power and his authority. It all comes from him and it can be yours too, simply for the asking. I want my heart, Jesus, under the power of your glory and authority. He'll make that happen. Only he can make it happen by his spirit. So Jesus' power, what about Jesus' authority? The Greek word is one of those really juicy Greek words, exousia. Exousia. It literally means out of his being. So there's nothing in creation that does not answer to Jesus. Everything is under his control. He can merely think something or say something, and it happens. To trust that is faith. To trust the power of Jesus is faith. And what is the most glorious climatic demonstration of this authority? His cross. The prophet tells, the angel tells Mary that he will reign forever. He does not explicitly make known to Mary the path to that reign. And that is his horrific, ruinous, bloody, shameful cross. Jesus had authority to lay down his life in the place of sinners. No other religious leader claimed to do that. Jesus was given that authority by his Father and he earned the right to die in your place to pay the penalty for all of your sins to set you free from eternal guilt and condemnation. He earned that right by living perfectly in your place. And he offered himself an acceptable sacrifice to his Father. He has authority to forgive sins. Have you said, forgive me, cleanse me, 
Save me! Today's the day to come under that authoritative proclamation. He speaks the word over you of forgiveness, and you are saved. That's the kind of power and authority Jesus has. And he had authority to take his life up again. He said, I lay my life down of its own accord, and I'll take it up again. And in the resurrection, Jesus Christ is glorified in his father, by his Father's decree. He ascended to his Father's throne, sat down, and there he reigns and will come again as the judge of the nations. Did Mary understand the greatness of his power and authority in the glory of Christ's resurrection, the glory of his ascension, that Jesus is, in fact, judge of all the earth, the ruler of the nations, the prince of peace, the Lord of life, king of kings, Lord of lords. So Jesus is great in what he came to do. And then, B, he's great in his being. Notice the angel says, he will be great. What tense is that? Future tense. That does not mean Jesus has not always been great. He is, in fact, the eternal Son of God. He made the world. There's never a time when Jesus was not the Son of God. He is eternally the Son of God. You get a snippet of this in in Jesus' prayer to his Father in John 17, verse 5. Jesus prays, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world was. Jesus is annexing his eternal glory and oneness with his Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. That that preposition, with, is face-to-face. He's face-to-face with his Father for all eternity. So he always was great, beloved. That's why he could claim to be the great I am, the self-existent God. He appeared in various forms in the Old Testament. Angel of the Lord, the rock that followed Israel. See, everything that is God, Jesus has been forever. Uncreated, self-existent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, infinite, majestic in splendor. Therefore, Jesus is great because God is great, because Jesus is God. I've given you some scriptures to this effect from the New Testament, Hebrews 1.3. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature. The passage Dory read earlier from Colossians chapter 1. The rich Christology of the glory of Jesus. And if God's greatness is an all-encompassing greatness, then Jesus' greatness is an all-encompassing greatness. How much time do we have? Wasn't Jesus great in righteousness? He never sinned. Great in wisdom. In him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. I think, um, I think Jamie or Dory alluded to, the, to the, the greatness of the son in obedience to his father, dependence upon his father. He said, my food is to do the will of my father. He didn't make a move without his father. Jesus' greatness is immeasurable. Compared to a candle, Jesus is the sun. Compared to a thimble, Jesus is the ocean. Compared to an anthill, Jesus is Mount Everest. Compared to a toothpick, Jesus is a towering redwood. We could go on and on. I want to focus particularly on one aspect of Jesus' greatness that relates to you in a very personal way, and that is Jesus is great in his condescension. You know, when people talk about the greatness of God, think of his holiness and sovereignty and omniscience, and, you know, God is 
distinguished from his creation. He's expansive. His presence fills the universe. But let's think for a minute about the condescension of God in Jesus Christ. Anticipated a little bit in Psalm 113, verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? See where your vision goes? Enthroned on high. He dwells in unapproachable light. Who is like him? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and earth. That God casts a glance of his eye for a nanosecond is an act of humility and condescension. Even more pointedly, Psalm 138. For great is the glory of the Lord. What are you thinking when you hear that? Great is the glory of the Lord. For though he is exalted. That's greatness. That's glory. What? He regards the lowly part of the glory of God and the condescension of Jesus Christ. That means he is great in relating to frail, needy, helpless, desperate, destitute people like you and me. This is anticipated in Psalm 147.3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Are you brokenhearted today? It doesn't matter what the reason is. This Jesus is intensely interested in your healing and help and comfort and consolation. Psalm 145.14, the Lord beholds those who are falling, raises up those who are bowed down. How else could you conceive of the tenderness of Jesus except in this image in Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break. That's you go out in the field and you have a little stick of you know, grass or something, and it, it's, it's a little bent, and it's real frail. God can move by it in its glory and not break it. A smoldering wick he would not extinguish. Boys and girls, when you blow out your birthday candles on the birthday cake, right, the flame goes out, and there's a little bit of an orange flicker and a lot of smoke. That little orange flicker, God can come by the glory of that flicker and not extinguish it. That's how tender he is with your heart. How gentle. This is why our Jesus served the poor. He touched the leper. He loved the outcast. He got on his knees to wash the disciples' feet. And when God told him his purpose in life, it wasn't like you're going to run IBM or be president of the United States. Your purpose in life is to go die for our enemies. Suffer and die. To pay the penalty for what he did not do a debt he did not incur, he absorbed. Now, what does all that mean for you? So what? How does that objective truth, objective facts about Jesus, how does that relate to you? I hope you're thinking that. It is simply this. Well, it's not simply. There's a lot of things I could say right now. That glory is yours to become like God. Not on your terms, but on God's. And the principle is you become what you desire and you desire what you look at. When Jesus' greatness is at the center of your vision, your motives, your heart's affections, it changes you into nothing less than Godness. It's really what you want in your heart of hearts to be God. But on God's terms, not yours. 
And David, King David in Israel, caught a snippet of this in Psalm 27.4. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I should seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. There it is. But Paul takes that a step farther in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says, we are beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord. We're beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. And consequently, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. The more you look at Jesus, the more you become like him. So beloved, you have got to take time to open your Bible, here it is. And the whole Bible is about Jesus. You get a lot of technicolor and detail in the Gospels. Take the time to read, to study, to meditate, to think, to reflect. Look at him, look at him, marvel at him. Keep looking until you are in awe. Keep looking until your heart melts under his glory. Keep looking until you are humble. Talk to people who have the same passion for Jesus, who love him, who read about him, who know his word, who want to tell you what he is like and what he has done for them. We call that fellowship. And you will find a dramatic transformation in your life. Let me close by asking this question. Are there any tangible evidences that you're really seeing Jesus? There are lots. I'm going to only mention three. Number one, you have new tastes in your soul. I'm going to call them bittersweet tastes. You experience the greatness of Jesus. There's a bittersweetness. Here's the bitterness. The more you see Jesus the more you know how loved you are and what he sacrificed for you, you realize your sin is a slap in his face. Your sin pangs you. It's bitter. And there's a sweetness that though he's exalted, and in light of the exaltation of Jesus, you sort of feel very small, and yet you are incredibly valuable that this Jesus has saved you to make you his own precious possession. Bittersweet taste in your mouth. Secondly, Jesus changes the way you bear with, forgive, and serve others. Do you know what I mean? If you don't, you're not seeing Jesus. You cannot come under the greatness of his glory and power. You cannot spend any time at the foot of his cross and not be radically changed in the humility, the grace, the gentleness, the patience with which you bear with people you otherwise don't like. Thirdly, and this is the last one, Jesus changes the way you measure greatness. He forces you to ditch our modern, contemporary, if you will, American notions of greatness measured by money, fame, appearances, power, prowess, however you want to put it. Jesus, Jesus says you have to ditch that. And when your heart comes under the power of his greatness, his authority, his glory, his condescension, what it will produce is greatness in kind, like Jesus Christ. So you step back and you read the Gospels and you go, in what way was Jesus great? They all begin with S. He was great in servitude. 
the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So now Jesus tells his disciples, the greatest among you shall be servant of all. I've got to think about that, Lord. Is that how I think about greatness in my life? Serving my wife? Serving my kids? Serving my neighbors? Greatness, servitude. Secondly, we see in Jesus the greatness of his selflessness. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and became obedient to his Father, even to the point of death on a cross. And therefore, Jesus calls us to have his mind in ourselves, which is to esteem others more highly than ourselves. The greatness of selflessness. Where is that manifesting itself in your life? What's hindering that from manifesting itself in your life? Why am I so stinking self-centered? Can God rescue me from that? The greatness and the condescension of Jesus. Hearing from his people, spending time with him, singing his praises, meditating on his word day and night. We see the greatness of Jesus' servanthood, his selflessness. We see the greatness of his sacrifice. Jesus said, no greater love has a man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. That's exactly what Jesus did. Laid down his life for his friends. It becomes the pleasure of a follower of Jesus to sacrifice time, money, opportunity for the sake of Jesus in the pattern of the glory of his sacrifice. Two more, greatness and sensitivity to people's needs. When Jesus called weak, frail, weary sinners to himself, he said, come to me, you'll find my heart gentle and humble. He's the most sensitive man that ever lived. Most caring man that ever lived. Of course, he's sensitive and caring as God. Where is that showing up in my life? Where are you missing that mark in people God has put in your life that should be the blessed recipients of that. And you go, I don't, ha I don't have it in me to do that. That's why ultimately greatness is measured by greatness on dependence on the Holy Spirit. You can't do any of this without the Holy Spirit. So beloved, there have to be measures built into your life and my life whereby we are seeking to have our hearts under the control of the Holy Spirit. And this stuff is just going to be a lot of pointless moralism. Last Last one, there's more we could say, greatness and stewardship. Hebrews 3 talks of Jesus as faithful to him who appointed him. The disciples should have been more concerned with that than their own measures of greatness when they asked Jesus, who's the greatest among us? <laughs> so here's the challenge. What, what does greatness look like in your life? I'll, I'm going to close with personal testimony. This is something I struggle with. I've been wrestling with really since the beginning of my public ministry. Before I was ordained, I went to Atlanta to Perimeter Church and was exposed to a ministry there. A pastor named Randy Pope. Who's heard of Randy Pope? Perimeter Churches in Atlanta? Okay, some of you. Randy Pope had this life motto. Attempt something so great for God that unless God is in it, it is destined to fail. That sound pretty good to you? Attempt something so great for God that unless God is in it, it is destined to fail. Radical dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit for God to show up. So that causes me to do what? It really causes me to look at my motives when it comes to greatness. 
So I have to ask myself, am I not even asking God or have any vision for greatness in my life? Because if not, I am robbing God the potential glory of being glorified by something of his greatness reflected in what I do. Do you follow? The greatness of God is to be reflected in the way you do things. So I have to ask myself, am I even asking, why do I lack the courage to pray that? Attempt something so great for God unless God is in it, it is destined to fail. Another motive, am I asking for greatness according to human standards? I want to be famous. I want to be rich. Am I asking for greatness because of selfish motives? It makes me look good. The worst thing you can do is do something great and not give God the glory for it. Was it Friday night we were at Walmart? We were shopping the other, the other day, and we ran into this man, and it turns out he's an inventor. He had a little card. He's got like 60 patents, things that you end up using every day of your life. And I kept listening, how, and I finally said, your brilliant mind reflects the glory of God. And he went on to another subject, and I, two minutes later I said, your genius is a reflection of the glory of God's mind. And he went on to another thing, and finally I said a third time, he just wasn't taking the bait. I was trying... I don't want him to someday stand before God who should get all the glory for his inventions and not know that. And beloved, here's the beautiful thing. Most of you are motivated for a greatness born of God's grace in your life. And I close with the verse from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me did not prove in vain. But I labored more than all of them, yet not I, the grace of God with me. Now, I don't know about doctors and parents who can see that coming. God can. And would you set your heart down on that in view of what Christ has done for you? Say, by the grace of God, I will be what God has designed me to be. And it won't prove vain. I labored more than all, but not I. The grace of God with me. The greatness of Jesus changing me. Let's pray. We stand in awe of your greatness and honor you, King Jesus, Savior, Lord, Emmanuel, the bright morning star, the great I am, the revelation of the Father, the bread of life, just goes on and on. Your greatness is immeasurable. Your glory incomprehensible. And yet, your word bids us to gaze upon this beauty and be changed. Thank you. May it be so of my brothers and sisters, of me, and because of that, have a new vision for whatever greatness you would ordain for us. And we would reflect back to you for your pleasure and honor something of your greatness in the way we talk, live, serve, Bless others for Jesus' sake. Amen.